0: Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast that checks in every week with the people at the centre of the debates about where Canadian policy should be headed, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. We speak with the thinkers, doers and deciders about how good policy can make for a better Canada. We'll be putting out a new episode every Thursday, so please join us weekly if you're up for a deep dive into the policy choices in front of us and the trade-offs involved. And tell your friends they can subscribe wherever they normally get their podcasts. You can listen to back episodes of Policy Speaking and learn more about the Public Policy Forum and our research projects at ppforum.ca or on the Twitter handle ppforum.ca. Here's the host of Policy Speaking, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of the Globe and Mail.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to Policy Speaking. Our episode this week is slightly different. Several days ago, The Public Policy Forum held a roundtable event on our Rebuild Canada initiative with Francis Donald, the Chief Economist of Manulife, and I wanted to share that conversation with this audience. Uh, Rebuild Canada aims at building a more resilient, productive, and fairer post-pandemic Canadian economy and society, pointing to the way to the policy changes that need to be undertaken. It will culminate in a series of 20 plus papers being published, written by an array of leading policy thinkers, including Francis Donald, and these will address key themes such as the macroeconomy, the determinants of growth and competitiveness, geopolitical relations, and having a fairer participation in the labor market and income security. The content of these papers have been informed by a collection of online convenings, which have brought together a broader group of thinkers, doers, and policymakers to discuss and debate the key issues. And this initiative will culminate in PPF's annual Rebuild Canada Growth Summit, which will be scheduled in this virtual world over a four-week period in October and November. We uh, had the audience interacting with Francis Donald and we began with me asking for some questions. So we're going to play those questions for you. And we'll also just um, give you a couple of edited clips of some responses in the audience discussion. We're pleased to have with us Francis Donald, Managing Director, Global Chief Economist, and Global Head of Macroeconomic Strategy for Manulife. Uh, Francis, you've written a paper, uh, a very interesting paper uh, for PPS Rebuild Canada series that will be released in the next week or two. And I wanna get uh, to the contents of that paper in a few minutes, but let's start by taking a step back and looking at where we are right now in this process of lockdown, recovery, adjustment, et cetera. So given that we're in the midst of a pandemic, how would you say the Canadian economy is doing now? What would you say we're doing right and what could we be doing better?
2: From the beginning, you know, I I really tried to push back against the idea that this recovery or any recovery globally would have a simple letter-shaped recovery. I'm sure you've seen this, you know, are we the V's, the U's, the L's? Um, It's just really not that simple. So I've used uh, a three-phase recovery framework, which I think has been a helpful roadmap, even if sometimes it feels simplistic. And that was to say, beginning around, um, well, not around, we can actually pinpoint it through our high-frequency data, um, you know, April 15th to 18th, all the way through till about August, we were in this phase one, what we call rapid recovery. It was like a beach ball being held underwater and rapidly released. And what was so critical about that phase was one, expectations were extraordinarily low. This, was, this is the worst economic shock, hopefully of our lifetimes. Um, from a market perspective though, and of course I tend to say I am the dark side economist, uh, markets care more about whether data is better or worse than expected, not good or bad. So this um, you know, extraordinarily low expectations became very easy to beat. And this, of course, led to a big surge in asset prices, which helps things like consumer confidence and our banks and our, and our system, right? But the second element of this first phase one rapid recovery was just this mammoth, um, historically large fiscal stimulus that didn't just occur in Canada, but occurred globally in proportions that we just simply have not seen before. But as you know, optimistic as that sounds, we knew we'd hit where we are now, which is just what we call phase two, the stall out which was a period that we meant to show would not be a double dip or the W if you wanna use a letter-shaped recovery, um, but really just that momentum would stall about 20 to 30% below pre-COVID levels. And really simply, that's just because we have social distancing in effect. Restaurants cannot bring in as many people, hairdressers cannot see as many clients, movie theaters cannot bring in people, and Quebec can't even go to these things. We're now back in lockdown period, um, so now we're, we're kind of in this phase to stall out. And while I could just leave it there, I would say that we probably need to start talking about some of the long term structural changes and damages that are occurring as we sit here waiting for a vaccine. And this is why you're hearing, um, you know, as much as I don't love letter-shaped recovery is why you hear the K concept so much more is because the division between different sectors and different types of households is just getting exacerbated the longer we stay in the stall out. Um, Now, when we talk about a K, effectively what we're saying is, you know, you bounce back and then some segments do really well and some do really poorly and actually go in the backwards direction. So anything that has to have social distancing, that's most services, uh, your coffee shop, your hairdresser, any of these things, really going to suffer a lot uh, in the next six months or so. Anything that doesn't have to use social distancing, so the manufacturing side of the economy, can continue to do really well. But we're also seeing, of course, an exacerbation of uh, the haves and the have-nots. So who's losing their job? Those least capable of, of handling a job loss. are low income, our most disenfranchised, our most vulnerable. Um, and who's holding on to their jobs so far? kind of our higher income. So that spread is getting wider. And that's why the length that we stay between now and the other side uh, really will determine what the other side looks like. I do spend a lot of time talking about phase three, what I call the new normal. Certainly not a very creative title at all. Everybody uses that, the new normal. And I know a lot of people like to talk about Zoom conferences and nobody going to Disneyland anymore. But there are some really more pervasive powerful and in some ways sinister things that have happened here that will fundamentally change the way our financial system and economies work one is um, ongoing u.s china decoupling and deglobalization this was another deglobalization shock two is uh you know just excessive largest amounts of government debt globally that we have really in many ways never seen before again that's global And lastly, extraordinarily low interest rates.
1: Let's come back to those points in a couple of minutes, uh, particularly the latter two, which you touch on in your paper fairly extensively. But let's just stick with the K for a moment, because we've had, I think economists have been infinitely creative in applying the shapes of letters to the possibilities of other coverage. We used to only have Vs and Ws, and now we have all kinds of Ls and Ks and others added in. What does the top of that K, the line going up on the bottom of that K, the line looking down, look like in terms of ongoing damage that will have to be repaired once we are out of this?
2: So... A big one that we've talked about a lot, and amazing how this has become mainstream, is actually families with children that require childcare and those that don't, because we're seeing already the impact of, uh, you know, drops in labor force participation rate that, particularly in U.S. data, but it's probably happening in Canadian data as well, comes back to concern about uh, childcare or, or caring for the elderly. So one of the things that central banks, for example, get really nervous about is when that labor force participation rate starts to drop. That's really hard on the economy. It's also a lot harder to fix. One of my concerns as we are in this kind of K-shape though, and, and admittedly I did tell you, I think we're in a K-shape, is that when we sort of divide the haves and the have-nots or the high income versus low income or white collar versus blue collar, we might be missing that if we stay in this stall out, if it takes years to get a vaccine, we might see that there are some elements of the story that are, are changing. So for example, we're already seeing some headlines about uh, you know banks shedding some big jobs. Um, there are a variety of sort of what would be considered more white-collar institutions that are shedding jobs as well. And if that starts to happen, then we're going to see bleed-through into things like housing market. We're going to see bleed-through into things like uh, more demand for luxury goods. So the impact on the economy will get worse the longer we're stuck here, and the necessity of repair will become much larger and more complicated the longer we stay stuck in this stall-out period. So
1: last week you posted a tweet for those of us who follow Twitter and follow you on Twitter, that if I remember correctly said the job market looks better on the surface, but it's weakening underneath. So just walk us through what you're seeing there.
2: Well, in, the, in the beginning of the recession, um, when we saw millions of Canadians and over 20 million Americans uh, unemployed, the vast majority of them um, you know, identified their job loss as a temporary job loss. So you could think of this as a Starbucks employee who's been told, we got to close for two weeks and then you're going to be rehired. They know they're going back. Or I have a cousin who's a tattoo artist, had to close her shop. Apparently there's endless demand for tattoos though, so she knew that people would eventually come back, get their sleeves done, for example. Um, Now, what's happened is that as the economies have reopened, all those who temporarily lost their jobs have been rehired in droves. And this has led to the surge in headline jobs numbers. What's happening under the surface, though, is more problematic, which is that we still have job losses. I have to use American data because it's more high frequency and less lag, but we seem to see parallels between the two economies and in the US you have over a million Americans a week who are newly filing for assistance. These new people who are filing for unemployment now are not temporarily out of work. They are the architects whose shops are being shut down. They are the white collar jobs that the banks are shedding. These people will not be rehired in six weeks when we come out of our second periods of lockdowns. Those people are going to be unemployed for extended periods of time. And what we know empirically is that the longer you're out of work, the harder it is to be rehired. You see skills degradation. You see loss of contact with the labor market. So what I'm about is really not how high the unemployment number is, but really the quality of that. Can these people be rehired quickly? And I'm concerned that we're going to stall at a fairly elevated level of unemployment, and that those who are left who are unemployed are really going to struggle to get rehired. So here we are celebrating how fast it looks like people are being rehired, but not paying attention to the quality of the labor market underneath. This deeply concerns me.
1: So this is the lower leg of your K again. And the lower leg of your K might be by income, by education, by sector, by type of job, by geography. There's all kinds of factors that bifurcate, you know, what will be this recovery. So for the people on the bottom end of the K, which is not just a classic low income issue, obviously that's part of it, but it's, it's more than that. What, um, what do you think the, what would you say are the one or two major policy priorities that you'd like to see to be addressing that?
2: Number one, we, we cannot yank assistance yet. And thank goodness it looks like even though CERB is technically ending, we do have some additional policies coming on. We're going to witness a very sizable uh, spread between those economies that continue their assistance through this second wave and those that did not, the US being the most prime example of an economy that did not make it to the other side of COVID. They provided assistance and then pulled out before the end of it. So one of my concerns is that we talked a lot about building the bridge to the other side. We are not on the other side. Or another way to put this is that we hear so much about, you know, never waste a good crisis and we've got to build back better. This is the the mantra of everyone. We can't be so focused on building back better that we forget our house is still on fire. There is still very much a risk of a double dip and another recession. So it's fantastic that we want to use low interest rates. We want to use this economy, the transformation, the appetite to build back a stronger, better economy, reskilled and retooled towards a more sustainable and inclusive future. Absolutely. But if we forget that there are still ex- there's still extreme suffering happening right now, I think we're really going to shoot ourselves in the foot. We're better to focus on near-term assistance. And then once we can get that under control, we can move on to the future.
1: I want to ask two questions about that. One, it seems to me, and I think you'd agree that, in fact, the neighborhood is on fire and different houses are, are are threatened in different ways in being engulfed by this fire. So I want to just talk about sectors for a moment. Which sectors are you most concerned about? Which sectors, if any, in your mind, merit special consideration?
2: Um, it's a twofold question because um, we have to really distinguish between, you know, who's going to make it with assistance and who is structurally hit forever. So that's not to say we need to have sacrificial lambs at all, that's not the point here, but who do we need to provide short-term assistance to and which industries need to be reskilled, retooled. So that that's the big differentiator. But the fundamental divider here is which industries have to operate with social distancing. That is the key determinant. That is the the kink in the K, because those with social distancing, even if there's huge demand for their products. If I wanted to get my hair done every day, I couldn't, there would not be enough capacity in the system to include me in that, right? So we really have to focus on those that have social distancing, need the support to get through the other side of COVID. Those that are more manufacturing or industrial based probably don't have the same sort of pain on their economy now. But again, you know, this is the, the biggest challenge for policymakers is to distinguish between what's a short term need, what's a long term industry that needs to be built back better, and where will all priorities be with Within that. It's not as it's not as simple as that's green, we want it in the future. It's really about who can make it and who really doesn't have any hope.
1: Okay, so some of the sectors that we hear about are airlines, hospitality, the oil and gas industry, the cultural industries, you know, these are live performances, you know, particularly. Do any of these, you know, I think government so far has been reluctant to help individual sectors and and industries in some ways. Is that a sustainable concept?
2: Well, here here comes the question of, so from my perspective, I'm thinking about uh, the employment side, okay? So which industries have individuals that need to be supported. And again, coming back to the temporary versus permanent. So in my view, we will have incredible pent up demand for travel. We will have individuals like myself who relocated to Montreal and will have to reverse commute into Toronto, Boston, and all these other major cities. There will be a surge back, in which case we're going to probably have a need to bring back the employees into these individual companies. So those will be industries in which I'd be thinking about building a bridge to the other side. Oil and gas, unfortunately, is going to see a long-term structural change in that industry. So how we treat it has to be very different than is this a COVID-specific shock or is it a long-term change? My sense is I think there's a lot of benefits and uh, value to oil and gas in Canada that needs to be supported as it transitions, but those are very different stories than what airlines are facing with, which is a more temporary shock in its nature.
1: And as I said, I have two things I wanted to ask about that. The second thing is, you know, you've talked about let's not yank support too quickly. So governments, assuming funds are limited, and we're going to get to that question in a couple of minutes, whether they are to what extent they are. Some countries are making the choice of trying to support their business sectors and particularly, I guess, in Germany, it's middle business sector. Other countries are making the choice to put the lion's share of support towards individuals and keeping their incomes up. How, how is Canada doing on that balance?
2: Oh, that's an excellent question, Ed. I think fairly well. So um, what we do hear, however, from survey data, and you know, I have to remind you, I'm an economist who looks at data to make conclusions. That's how we're supposed to do this game. Canada has suffered from a lack of data, particularly compared to other major developed nations, for a long time, and a lot of our data is lagged. So, you know, most of what I have in my 100 pages of Canadian charts tells me where the economy was two months ago. So we've had to turn towards surveys a lot more than I think a lot of economists are very comfortable with. What we see from the surveys and what we would surmise is that households feel generally well supported when it comes to income support, but businesses feel like they could use a little bit more, particularly when it comes to um, rent is a big issue that comes up and some of the protection that should be available there. So if you were to ask Canadians, you'd probably have people respond to the survey saying individuals feel more supported than businesses as a whole, but it's tricky. Now you have different jurisdictions that are coming in and then you have a moral hazard problem, which is what a lot of the central banks are dealing with. Which is, should we be supporting companies that maybe be, should should fail in a recession? Should we be supporting companies that are maybe not as strong? Is that an environment that we want to head into? I think that might be more of a central bank question because they provide loans and liquidity for these individuals. But these are really big philosophical questions that become very challenging, particularly when it comes to COVID, because who could have predicted COVID? And you know, should a coffee shop, would a coffee shop deserve to be supported in regular environment? Absolutely. Do they deserve to be supported in COVID, probably to the same extent. So so these are questions that I I think are really challenging, and we kind of have to go month by month, keeping in mind that the data that we can be using to answer these questions is very, very lagged. And I think what we're probably going to see is a lot of demand for better, more intense, high-frequency data in Canada on the other side of COVID. I certainly will be asking for that.
1: Right. Okay. We'll make sure that that gets to some of our members who are uh, include StatsCan and uh, and various other agencies that are putting out data and I think uh, want to serve you better and want you to be able to make uh, better informed analysis. I'm going to go to the macro economy in one second. I just want to I just want to touch on one point that you mentioned near the beginning and give you a chance to elaborate on it. You talked about decoupling of the United States and China. We're on the eve of a U.S. election, although there seems to be a consensus in the U.S. about China as a strategic rival. And, you know, I don't know how much election will change policy or not on that front. But what do you see there as the dangers and the vulnerabilities to Canada? And do you have a sense of how these might be managed?
2: Generally, from my perspective, what we see is kind of two major implications. One is that if we are heading into a period, I don't want to say deglobalization, because globalization is a persistent forever trend, you know, the fact that I can buy sneakers from Australia or buy a book from the UK will continue to exist, right? Uh, But if we kind of see a second derivative change in that, our expectation is that we reverse the idea that you should have massive diversified trade and head back into a safer feeling of regionalization of trade. That's entirely possible that we see Asia trading more aggressively as a block, Europe or North America. So for a long time, we've heard, you know, Canada trying to diversify its trade books. I'm not sure that we're gonna be able to achieve that to the degree that we had hoped for, particularly before 2016. The second implication of that is that I suspect it's mildly inflationary. So if we have more Canadian and US companies saying, it is a risk to my business to try to be doing business abroad, that is problematic. I would rather source goods and labor domestically, even if it means I have to pay more in the short term, it's almost an insurance policy against future shocks. Essentially what that means is that deglobalization or shift in globalization does increase prices slightly. So those are the kind of two major implications that I see from a macroeconomic perspective occurring over this period. I think the idea of you know trying to become someone that is trading globally in equal proportion is going to become much more challenging for all policymakers over the next 10 to 15 years.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that lies the need for an export strategy. But the, the danger, the microeconomic danger in that seems to me, of course, is that. If we become more regionalized, we happen to live in a slow growth region. We have a mature economy and, you know, the large growth region in the world is Asia. And if our businesses want to, you know, truly grow and if access to the United States is is more impeded, I guess we can't afford to write off Asia. And I'm looking at someone from Manulite, but I know you people are very heavily invested there as well.
2: So... There's going to be a big difference between manufacturing and services, but one of the challenging, you know, it puts a, a, a knot in my stomach is that all of the economics that I always studied was basically if you allow the market to run, it will come out to the best outcome, right? It'll, it'll produce sort of an optimal outcome. But so many of the the large structural changes that we're experiencing right now, in my mind, actually contribute to what economists would call misallocation of capital. You know, deglobalization is probably not, and other people may push back on this, probably not the best outcome for all of us, particularly in Canada. Um, You know, seeing extraordinarily low interest rates at 0% is probably going to contribute to distortions in the financial system that are not the best outcome for us. Governments or central banks that are engaged in debt monetization, the, the transition towards ESG is going to lose a lot of, you know, there's going to be stranded assets just sitting in fields. So we may have to actually adjust our perception in economics to the fact that the world is going to move away. So something that is suboptimal, that we're going to have slower growth as a result, and that there are more powerful forces like deglobalization or populism or pandemics that push us towards suboptimal outcomes. That's not what economics told us would happen in sort of econ 101, but it appears to be the transition we're heading towards. And we should probably prepare for that. And policy should probably be aware that there are new problems that are gonna come to arise that we need to tinker with differently than we have over the past 40 or 50 years.
1: Okay, let's take three, four minutes at the end to talk about your paper. And I hope this is not unfair to do this to you, but I want to contrast a little bit. I want you to contrast a little bit with another paper in the series that was done by another economist. And I wouldn't just throw any economist at you, but I'm going to throw David Dodge's paper for a moment. So as you know, David published a paper in the Rebuild series about two weeks ago that said we have to manage two deficits, Fiscal One and our current account deficit. On the latter, he argued that Canada needs to put more of its borrowing into the creation and attraction of productive assets in order to finance the future growth that uh, will allow us to cope better with the deficit. And that failing to address this could expose us to nervous global investors and possible risk premiums on our borrowing down the road. So what's your take on that essential argument?
2: Okay, well, first of all, when I was a lowly research assistant at the Bank of Canada, there were portraits of David Dodge in the hallway. I think he was probably quoted in my textbooks and authority. So he is uh, the king and uh, I will never ever disagree with him. So I should probably, you know, read more of his work um, before ever saying anything. I think um, I actually, you might say, well, what the heck, this isn't what your paper says. I agree. Um, with David Dodge, that deficits do need to be managed. My point of contention is that our timeline is much longer and we have a lot longer to deal with deficits than we have in historical periods. So one thing that's come up in the conversation quite a bit lately is the idea that either you have to have a balanced budget right away, like within five to 10 years, or deficits don't matter at all, MMT. I think there's a middle ground in this world. There is a middle ground, and the middle ground should not be taken advantage of to engage in reckless spending that is difficult to unwind, but instead recognize that the game is slightly changed. The game is slightly changed for a variety of reasons. One is that interest rates are extraordinarily low. This one, everybody understands. Now, the pushback to that is interest rates will eventually rise. They will but it's going to be a very long time, probably 10 years before that occurs. Number two reason, and this one is the least understood. The big reason that we get worried about huge amounts of government debt is because we worry that international investors are going to say, we don't trust Canada anymore. They have to, you know, they're not a trustworthy source. They'll never pay us back. We demand a higher interest rate. This is what happened in the 90s. But guess who's buying 80% of our issuance right now? The Bank of Canada. That's like when my brother asks me to borrow money and I give it to him interest free because he's family, right? So I still wanna get paid back, but if it took a little longer, maybe be okay, right? So we don't need to worry to the same extent about attracting international buyers because we have a buyer that is soaking up massive amounts of issuance. Now this will create problems particularly for the Bank of Canada, because eventually they will wanna pull back on that and we will see that we will need to attract international investors. But this is fundamentally different than any period in our history. We have never seen this in Canada and we haven't seen it to the same size anywhere except in Japan in the past. So we have to acknowledge that this game is slightly different. The third reason that things are a little bit different here is Canada's deficit and its debt is not blowing out alone. This is happening on a global scale. So I work with bond buyers every single day. They just want to buy whoever's best. And Canada, even if it loses its AAA rating, even if it continues to spend, is still one of um, the best options when it comes to getting return, in part because it still has a positive interest rate, unlike you know 25% of the global bond universe. So when you talk to traders, when you talk to the people who need to buy this stuff, there really isn't the same concern, particularly because you have this captive buyer. So that's not to say these issues won't unwind. And certainly if Canada were to outspend the US and really degrade itself relative to its peers, this would be a huge problem, which is why you can't just spend no matter how much you want. But it is to say that there is a different financial system in place right now that buys us more time. Fundamentally, what I'm concerned of is that we are in a great recession that could become a depression if we don't respond properly that would require even more spending than what we're spending now. So we have to focus on you know, putting the fire out on our house, Reskilling, retooling our economy for the future economy, and then allowing for a slow improvement in federal finances. So, you know, the short answer, which I should have just gone with in the beginning is, I agree, these long standing issues are still issues, we just have a lot longer to deal with them than we have in the past. And that means there's a middle ground that we probably need to acknowledge as policymakers, if I'm ever a policymaker.
1: And I will say this is fundamental to your paper and quote from your paper you've said twice already, a middle ground has opened up between unrestrained spending and unreasonable restraint. Uh, nice phrase. And I guess part, you know, central to the thesis of, you know, is that both we have more time because the nature of long-term low interest rates with low inflation, and we've seen that persistent over many years and the other factors you mentioned, but also, as you're saying, your argument is partly that uh, in the 1990s, we're, we were an outlier, a negative outlier in the international marketplace. Now we're a slightly less negative part of the crowd.
2: So, yeah, so if you talk, if you talk to um, people who buy bonds, uh, they'll tell you. If I have to buy a government bond, I want to go somewhere where there's not a ton of political uncertainty. And listen, us deciding between, for example, the liberals and the conservative is not what international investors consider political uncertainty, okay? So there's not a lot of political uncertainty. It's a generally democratic state. It has higher interest rates, and its debt-to-GDP ratios are still well-contained compared to its peers. That still makes it one of the top 10 golden credits available. So as long as we stay within that range in the pack, everyone is getting a little bit worse right now. As long as we stay within that range, I don't worry about global investors all of a sudden saying, Canada, you're unreliable. That, that just doesn't seem consistent with what's happening on a global scale. So a year ago, the concept of modern monetary theory was so fringe that if a reporter called me to talk about it, I would say I'm sorry. I I don't want to get you know fired, so I'm not even going to say the words MMT. So quickly, the rise of Stephanie Kelton writing a New York Times bestseller has led to an entire segment of the population being sort of re-educated, rightly or wrongly, about the concept of deficits. However, just because the idea of budget deficits has become uh, more Politically acceptable does not mean that it's necessarily right. Um, and so one of the concerns we have is that you will have a shift in public perception of deficits that should not be determining the outcome for the country, right? Um, and just as we have these books of MMT claiming that this is the right approach, um, we're probably going to have uh, and we've seen it already, push back against those ideas. One of my concerns for Canada, and this is my own personal opinion, is that the value of MMT really rests on the idea, and the book is written from a US perception, that there will always be a thirst for US dollars. Now, I'm a good Canadian, but there will not always be a thirst for Canadian dollars. We do not have the same sort of ongoing love. Global commodities are not priced in Canadian dollars. Central banks do not have excess reserves in Canadian dollars. So one issue I have is that we will have a segment of the population that is kind of looking at and reading this very credible book, which I have recommended that people read and not realize that it's less applicable to the Canada story. So uh, we'll have to rely on our policymakers uh, to not be guided by the public perception of deficits as much as the, the improvements for Canada. Second question was about fiscal management and the political cycle. The benefits of, um, so in David Dodge's excellent paper, because he's a hero, he does talk about um, you know what you're effectively looking for is your growth rate to rise faster than your interest rates. And this almost corrects the situation by itself, right? the longer a timeline you give for yourself, the more likely you are to exceed, particularly in this environment, your growth rates start to rise naturally as we come out of this very pronounced recession. So the, the economy will sort of do some of that work for the government. But one of the reasons that I like the Quebec style of fiscal anchors, which is to say the extent of what you spend is tied to where you are in the business cycle, is that as long as you have that commitment, it sort of reduces this, the um, the need for one political party to be guiding fiscal strategy. It's really determined on where you are in the economic cycle, and then you have to hope that that, that political party stays to that fiscal anchor. Uh, but generally, what we have found throughout history, and I think David Dodges says this on other calls as well, is that uh, when we commit to balancing the budget, we generally don't. So the the longer time frame we give ourselves, the more we allow our economy to grow, I would say, is the better approach.
1: OK, well, I want to thank you for that and um, this part of the discussion. Very illuminating. Okay, next up on Policy Speaking, we are joined today for a special session by J.D.M. Stewart, our history and trivia consultant buff, and by Policy Speaking producer Katie Davey. Uh, Welcome to both of you to the show.
3: Thanks for having me, Ed.
1: James, we uh, probably want to start by thanking you for the contributions you are making and will continue to make to keep us both frustrated and tantalized about some of our history and uh, as it relates particularly to the uh, subjects that are in the news now and the episodes that we're doing. So thank you for that. You're welcome. So you are a high school history teacher, and uh, just you're back in school, and, you know, how's school going?
3: So far it's going very well, I'm, I'm lucky to say. And after six months away from students, I have to say that being back in the classroom with the kids was very gratifying and uplifting. So we're being careful. Um, we're, we're making the, the changes and, and things that are necessary to keep people as safe as possible. But I think the number one thing is, having kids in a classroom and and being with them makes everybody feel pretty good.
4: So James, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by what, you know, teaching history looks like right now when in some cases, you know, history is two days ago with how quick news is moving and things like that in in both a pandemic and a digital space. So what does that look like for you? And you know, what value, I guess, do your students see in learning more about the past?
3: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And certainly, Um, you see the importance of history when you look at at current events. And we've been very mindful of that in our history teaching team, thinking about things that happened in the summer with Black Lives Matter, thinking of recent issues with uh, reconciliation with Canada's Indigenous peoples. Uh, If you're teaching American history, obviously what's going on in the United States and with the election is of great importance. But I've always felt and always taught in the way that to try to teach kids that you can't understand the present unless you have an understanding of the past. And this year, 2020, just happens to be one of those remarkable years in history where so much is happening. And there are other ways, other touchstones from the past, whether it's the, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 and 1919, which we've been talking about in class this year or myriads of other things that I've already touched upon, history has always had relevance, this year perhaps more than in, uh, in recent memory.
1: I guess sometimes I wonder, as I get older, what is history and what is current events? So I was struck about two years ago when Andrew Sher, maybe it was three years ago, when Andrew Sher became leader of the Conservative Party, briefly I suppose, and somebody had asked him how he got interested in, in public life. And he said that he was reading the newspaper when he was a, a teenager or kid about the revolution in Romania and how the dictator there had been executed and it got him interested in public life. And I thought... I was a Globe Mail correspondent covering the revolution in Romania, and to me, it's a current event, and uh, yeah, yeah. I am feeling very old if the Conservative Party leader feels that, that this, yeah. is, uh, this is a piece of, of history.
3: It's true, but, you know, um, we like to teach our students that history is a construction, so things happen in the past. And then they get interpreted by people such as uh, you when you were a journalist and uh, editorial writers and opinion makers and historians. So we try to teach the students and give them the skills to understand that history is a construction and that they have to be very mindful of that in order to be uh, a critical consumer of whatever history texts they're getting, whether it's primary sources or others. And then, of course, those skills are really transferable to be a critical consumer of news and information which is so important today because of you know the advent of fake news and the number of platforms that people can get their news from Uh, what we can do really has transferable skills when we're teaching kids history
4: I think that's fascinating because actually my very first ever um, internship when I was in university was with the uh, public heritage branch in the government of New Brunswick Mm. really the first time I, I guess I kind of learned that history um, is not set in stone and that it it does have interpretations and frames. Um, So why why don't you tell us a little bit more about where you're looking for some of the trivia and the history that you're bringing to policy speaking?
3: Mm. Yeah, so the trivia is really just about being interested in, in life, I guess, and also trying to find anecdotes that will hook people. You know as a teacher for this is my 27th year of teaching and so you have to try to find ways to engage students and the way to do that is to tell them something a little offbeat whether it's talking about mackenzie king's pets or um you know something about i don't know just the the matchless six of the 1928 amsterdam olympics and and the medals that they won with women competing there, or even the Edmonton grads. There's so many great stories and, and, and bits and pieces to tell students, to get them thinking about history as a story and as a, um, a kaleidoscope of interesting things, some that get into history books and others that don't.
1: Okay, well look, last week we were talking on uh, policy speaking about communications, and particularly digital uh, infrastructure in the country and the importance of transportation and communications uh, throughout our history. And you came up with a question that some of our listeners uh, were responding to on our PPF Twitter or Instagram accounts, if they can. So last week's question was, mobile phones, not to be confused with cellular phones, have a fairly long history in Canada. When was the first mobile phone introduced and who was the first subscriber? So James, I think since you wrote the question, you probably know the answer. So maybe you can give us the answer.
3: Well, I thought I was just providing the questions, quite frankly, Ed. So now you've put me on the spot. But uh, let, me, let me give that some thought. I think this goes, um, goes back to the 1940s. And, uh, I think it was June of 47 was the first mobile phone. And this was a clunker, you know, not to be confused as, as a cellular phone. It's more like think of it as a giant typewriter with a a handheld receiver on it. And the first subscriber to this service was indeed the global mail newspaper. So, uh, kind of an interesting piece of trivia right there for both newspapers and uh, communications.
1: Yeah, well, the Globe and Mail back in those days also had an airplane that would fly up to stories in northern Ontario because it was owned by a mining magnate. And uh, right. he, had a lot, he had a lot of interest up there in those days. And I can say that my own recollection of the first use of a mobile phone, a cell phone, in boarding was at an air crash on the M1 highway in January 1990. It was about A week and a half after Lockerbie bombing, I'd been up in Lockerbie, and then there was a second uh, smaller plane crash, and I had to report from the highway, and a reporter friend of mine was walking down with this huge mobile phone, and I was able to call the Globe and report from the scene on that phone. So, as you uh, say today, more than 25 million Canadians use that technology every day. That's right. So this week we have a new question from J.D.M. Stewart, our history teacher extraordinaire and author of the 2018 book, Being Prime Minister. And the question is, this month is the 50th anniversary of the October crisis, when the government of Pierre Trudeau invoked the War Measures Act as a result of the kidnapping of British Trade Commissioner James Cross and Quebec Cabinet Minister Pierre Laporte. This week's question is inspired by that event and Canadian music. We are asking, which song by the Tragically Hip was said to be inspired by the kidnapping and subsequent murder of Pierre Laporte? So which Tragically Hip song was inspired by the kidnapping and subsequent murder of Pierre Laporte? Please send your answers to us at PPF through our Twitter or Instagram account. Thank you James for uh, joining us today and finally I want to get to our weekly member shout out at the end of our podcast we'd like to take a moment to salute some of the above and beyond the call of duty efforts being made by PPF partners and members and this week we want to say how PPF proud we are of our member Shopify which also happens to be a lead partner on our Rebuild Canada series we Thanks Shopify for its support on rebuild and recognize its excellence as a global leader in e-commerce. From its Go Digital Canada program designed to support the digitization of businesses in Canada to its Shopify Partner program and beyond, we are proud of Shopify for helping to lead the vision and practices of how we build and will rebuild the Canadian economy and strengthen our digital sector, of which it's one of the great exemplars. A wrap on this edition of our podcast, I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum. If you enjoyed this episode, if you're interested in any of our other work, let us know on Twitter at PPForumCA or visit our website and subscribe to our podcast, please, and have your friends subscribe wherever you normally listen to podcasts. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspan and this has been Policy Speak.